All right, so here we go. We are starting a new thing. And some of you would even say it's about time. We, we spent a lot of time doing some uh, character studies this summer. And uh, we looked at disciplines of a godly life. And we went through some material on that. And now we are in a new thing in the fall. We are always, if you're new with us, we are always in a new thing in the fall. And we are taking this idea from a right now media study. And so also if you're new, one of the things we do is we have like the Christian Netflix uh, that, that we're a part of, that we pay. We pay for all of you to subscribe. It costs us uh, actually quite a bit of money, but, so thank you for tithing to that. Uh, but it allows all of us to be on the same page and have access to all sorts of Bible-believing studies in this thing called Right Now Media. And then one of them, because I use that too, one of them that I found is by a guy by the name of Louis Giglio. Who's heard of Louis Giglio? Passion City Church. We actually called Passion City Church. They let us use uh, this, and uh, we told them kind of what we're doing. Uh, we are going to be following that Right Now Media study, and some weeks it's going to be very similar. Some weeks we're going to do our own thing, but it's something that I felt like we really needed to walk through as a church, and I'm going to get into all of why that's important kind of this morning, and uh, each week we're going to be taking a character in the Bible, and here's the premise of it, that's not a big deal, that does extraordinary things for the gospel to advance. And it's built on the premise that most of us in this place, I don't want to burst your bubble, myself included, are not a big deal. Does that hurt your feelings? I know that maybe you've been told by your mom and dad, if you're young, that you are a big deal, but trust me, trust me, there will be a day of reckoning in your life where you look and you realize a lot like the people in the fine print of scripture that maybe just get kind of this much airtime and then it moves forward. But as we unpack what that means, there are people that get this much airtime that actually do incredible things for the kingdom of God. Uh, always trying to use my own life as a platform because I only have my own life to reference in some ways. But I was thinking about, I've been, the older I get, the more I've been people watching. You guys do that? Like I just kind of watch people and, and then I have to repent when I judge them for all their things that they do that I would never do because I'm so much smarter than them, right? But uh, I've been people watching. There's been this heightened state of people watching in my life because I'm raising teenagers. And when you start raising teenagers, you realize the world is crazy, and specifically your teenagers are even crazier. But I've been in the mix with that, very involved in the school that my kids go to, and uh, watching everything play out. And I was thinking about how this actually works and why this is so difficult to identify with, and there are a number of reasons, why it's so difficult to identify with people like this who are amazing. Because really, everything that life sets us up for ultimately lets us down. And, and you could blame a lot of things. You could blame social media, uh, or there's a number of things that you could talk about. Uh, but I think it's just kind of even just in South Dakota specifically, there's a way that we live that doesn't sustain. And so my example would be, uh, I'm watching my oldest and I'm watching everything that's happening in his life and how he's changing and how that's scary as a dad and things that I never thought, you know, I thought, okay, that was just for me in high school, but it turns out it's universal. And one of the things that I'm watching is, is how much attention high schoolers get that will never sustain. sustain. Can, you, can you remember your high school life? Are you that guy or girl that still wears the Letterman's jacket and can't get over it like you're the Fonzarelli? All right, so, so I'm watching this all happen in his life, and all of a sudden he was getting no attention, and now football's going, and it's Friday Night Lights, and they call your name on this big screen at the, the, the new Northern Stadium, and then I never played football because my mom was scared I would get hurt, but, but we let our kids play football because we want to be real parents, but uh, I, I was... 
I was watching this all happen over the last four weeks, and, and trust me, if you don't know they're a big deal, just talk to the student. We have football players in the church. They'll tell you they're, they're a big deal this year, and they're undefeated, and they played a really bad team Friday uh, through Ron Cauley because they co-op with Ron Cauley, and they beat him like 70-0 to zero at halftime. And it sounds like, well, they must be so good, but trust me, I was there. Uh, that wasn't the whole narrative. The other team was young, okay? They were young. But they get called out of this gate, and all of a sudden it's just like there's so much testosterone and goofiness flooding their brain where all of a sudden you're like watching a Braveheart movie. Who played football? Anybody? Okay, do you remember what it's like? You're the, you're the, ca- you're the captain of your own ship. You're running out, and no, number 72, and everyone's like, ooh, 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 and they, and they hit each other, and they're barbaric, and, and they just absolutely just, I don't know how else to say it. They love themselves. They love themselves. And I'm thinking, did I raise this child? Like, who, who is this kid that loves himself so much? And then I see all his friends, and in counseling for the last 20 years, specifically with teenage boys, I then watch the progression of it. And the progression's more interesting than the process in the moment for me. Because then I see them graduate, and all of a sudden, no matter what they really do after, for the most part, now I know there are exceptions, but for the most part, South Dakota way, they kind of go like this, ready? It's, yeah, number 72, we're going to take over the world, boom, you know, and then, then they graduate, it's like, right? In the sense that they never get that type of attention again. And for me, that's a good thing because that's just goofy stuff that's not even real in life. And I've noticed these two things about high schoolers that, that really represent a dichotomy in their existence. On one hand, they're very insecure. They're always looking. I'm not talking about my own kids now, but I mean, maybe. But all high school kids, girls, guys, they're kind of always looking over their shoulder. Are they not to see who's looking at them? Have you noticed that about high schoolers? It's like they're laughing and joking around and they're instantly looking to see who's noticing them. So on one hand, they're very insecure. And then on the other hand, they're jumping out Friday night lights. They're very overconfident because they grow up in these small towns in South Dakota and they get told by people around them that they're a big deal. And then they graduate. So there's this dichotomy taking place. And then they graduate and they realize that that's not the way life really works. And that's if you raise them right. Now, it's week one, so I'm going off on a tangent. I'm going to bring this all back in. If you don't raise them right, they always think they're a big deal, and they're very scary individuals, are they not? But then they graduate, and they realize that that's not really how life works. And so some kids graduate, they run into a brick wall. They don't know how to process that. In fact, one of the highest rates of depression is in college. And then other kids seem to thrive. But the reason I bring all of that up is this is kind of our template for raising our kids where we've become a culture that really worships kids. And then we do so in a way that can't sustain and they graduate and they realize this thing that if you are a healthy adult, you have come to realize that you are a piece of the story of this life. You are not center stage. The lights are not always going to be on you if ever and that's okay because then we get to the gospels and we learn about how things actually work and here's what the gospels tell us and show us that we don't live, learn in the culture around us that tends to worship self. What we learn in the Gospels is this. There is one superstar to the narrative, and what is his name? All right, 10 of you on the right side got it. There are 10 super, there there is one superstar in the narrative of the Gospels, and his name is Jesus Christ, and all of us then become people of the fine print. And so I want to spend time in that. I will just tell you very confidentially, don't tell anyone else, 
This is not my natural narrative. If you know me, you know I'm a bit of a man diva. I kind of like, people are saying, do you get nervous in this? And I feel guilty. I feel like a narcissist. I'm like, I actually don't get nervous in front of people. And I kind of like it. And these lights are cool for me. And so I don't naturally relate to what we're going to talk about. But what I know is this is who God has called me to be as well. And this is where the power of unleashing the gospel lies and being a person of the fine print. And so here we are. Tagline for the series I thought of this week is I want to share with you, we are to be nobodies that serve somebody, and we are to find purpose in living in this fine print of life. And the first person we're going to study, and you can take out your notes, and we're going to walk through some stuff in Acts, is this guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas is a guy in the last 12 years that I have, to my recollection, I have never preached on this guy. So so we all know the big players in Scripture, don't we? We all know guys like Peter and John and Paul and Moses and David. A few weeks ago, we spent some time talking about um, Abraham and and different characters in the Bible. There are other people that get these little blurps. Paul likes to bring them up. He'll he'll close out letters like he closes out the the short letter to the Colossian, Colossian church. And he mentions like 11 people. And he also throws in there this guy by the name of Barnabas. And they get this little tiny story, this little narrative that God decides to put within the canonized scripture. And Louis Giglio points out two reasons that I want to bring to light. There are two reasons that this happens. Number one, people to fine print get recognized because God appoints people for roles in his story. He's the superstar. His son is the superstar. He goes to a cross. He dies. He rises from death. He brings new life. He ushers in the kingdom. His blood, like Greg was talking about in worship, covers our sin. He is the star. And God appoints people in the fine print for roles in the story. But number two, and I want you to write this down. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. Giglio says the church, the reason this all plays out is the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. That's how the church is supposed to operate. That we are people of the fine print. There's a talented speaker sometimes. Sometimes there's a great worship leader. Sometimes there's someone that's a good organizer behind the scenes. And so in in a ministry, especially maybe like New Life, and I'm not putting myself in there, don't worry. I I kind of know where I stand in the grand scheme of things. I'm not that big of a deal. Trust me, I get that. But there are a few people that get a lot of stage time. But the reality is the church isn't built on a talented speaker or a worship leader or, or someone who knows how to market. The church is built and will always be built on the wealth and gifts of talents of people that call New Life their home who have sacrificed a great deal and look like the people of the fine print. And no matter our gifts and talents, we all have this great equalizer. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same mission. We have the same vision. We have the same passion for the lost. We have the same hope for eternity. And so we come together on Sundays like coming back to church Sunday in the fall and we celebrate this reality that there are a lot of new lifers in Aberdeen and there are a lot of new lifers uh, even in Peru, but we all surround ourselves by this mission of being in the fine print, making the superstar great through making disciples of Jesus Christ. So, so here's Barnabas. We're going to unpack him today. Turn your Bibles to Acts if you have them. You're going to see a lot of scriptures on the scene, on the screen. This guy was first named Joseph, we're going to learn. He came from a place called Cyprus, and at some point he journeyed to Jerusalem. 
And as he's coming to Jerusalem, he starts building relationships. As he converts to the faith, he gets a name change. That's not exclusive to him. And he puts his faith in Jesus. And people start noticing this guy for his character. And his name changes now to Barnabas, which translates, which is one of the coolest names you can ever have, the son of encouragement. He's an encourager by his very nature. We have elders on the elder board that, that fit this script. They're doing a lot of good things. They don't get a lot of recognition, but they're just encourager, encouragers. They have wisdoms. They're, the wisdom, they're connectors. They're builders of relationships within the church, and they look like this guy Barnabas. But let, let's learn first, Acts 4, about how this all happened. Verse 32, the Bible says, Now the full number of those who believed were one of heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. We've heard of that story, but check out the details, verse 35. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each if any had need. Often this is a reference to when people need to tithe more. Pastors will be like, hey, they gave everything. You give something, right? Verse 36 Thus Joseph, that was his old name, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's the first thing we learn about this person of the fine print, that he actually took his resources, or maybe a better way of saying it is he took his money and put it where his mouth is, and he enters the narrative of Scripture, no specific training, no specific gifting, no specific great stage presence. He just came onto the scene, an encourager at his heart of hearts. He says, I see a need. I've got this piece of land. I'm going to sell it. And he lays it at the apostles' feet, and he just says this. He just says, do, do some good with this. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, I'm giving this land. If I could just have my name attached to it, if I could be publicly celebrated, if you could even just put my name on a pew, or if you could just put me in the bulletin as the person who's matching the gifts so that ministry can happen. No, he doesn't want anything. He just lays it. This is a humble act. He lays it at the apostles' feet. Early church is starting. It's about to explode. Things are already happening. But here's what's so cool. This is what this study brings to light. This is what's so cool as a starting point to this son of encouragement. That day one, he's an investor in God's kingdom work. How cool is that? I mean, is there any greater investment than investing in the early church? Right now, over a billion people consider themselves Christians all around. I mean, this is the largest, still the largest religion in the world. I'm not saying everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian, but there are a lot of people who have heard about Jesus because of day one investors. There is no better investment than what happened in the early church. There, there is no better company. There's no better capital. Uh, there, there's an example given that if you were to, to buy a share of Apple for, I think, $10 in 1980 when it went public, and you purchased 10 shares at $220, it would now be the equivalent of 560 shares, which equals over $80,000 if you just had $200 because you took that original investment in Apple and you did something with it and you saw it expand upon its sound and have, uh, on itself and have compounding benefits. Barnabas says, here's the field, do what you want with it. And now all these years later, 
So many people, yourself included, myself included, have been affected by his original investment. The story goes on. You get to Acts chapter 9. We learn that when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Who, who's that talking about? That's talking about uh, Paul, who's known as Saul. And he was killing people for a living. He was a hater of Christians. He was a religious, religious man to his core. And then he literally gets blinded. Jesus encounters him in a very real way, and now he comes to Christ. He gets saved. But he comes to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples, and it's kind of like this tension that exists because uh, 2,000 years later, if you you kill people for a living and then you come to Christ, not everyone's just going to say, hey, I'm sure he's fine, right? And so the Bible says, and they were all afraid of him, natural. They did not believe that he was a disciple. Here's what's so cool. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in out and among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. I mean, just by a show of hands, how many of you would be a little cautious if someone killed your friend and they said, hey, I want to come to your house for dinner. I want to hang out with you. I want to be a part of what you're doing because now I'm a Christian. How many of you would just be a little hesitant? Right? The rest of you are just liars. Or you would lack massive discernment and you probably need help. This is a normal thing. Barnabas, here's what I want to bring to light. Barnabas is such a connector. Barnabas has so much integrity that people know him. It's like Aberdeen. You, know, you kind of know everyone or you know someone who knows someone. If you're new to South Dakota, trust me, anyone you meet knows someone who knows someone that you're going to meet. This is the early church. This is what's going on. And so they don't trust Paul. They know what Saul has been about, who now calls himself Paul. They, they know the narrative. Barnabas has so much credibility between the time that he follows Jesus, sells his land, and then lives his life, that this guy who is a murderer gets a shout out from Barnabas, and everyone goes, he sounds crazy, but I trust Barnabas. People of the fine print. I trust what he's about, and if Barnabas says that this guy is cool, then obviously we need to all take note. The plot keeps sticking. He gets more and more responsibility. Chapter 11, verse 19, talks about people being scattered over persecution because Stephen was killed at the hands of Paul. And then as the story progresses, verse 21, the Bible says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent, are you tracking with me? They sent who? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was, and this is what's so cool, this is the character on display, this is why he gets the narrative of saying everyone should be cool with Paul, if I say it, it's true, you know my character, you know my faithfulness, this is what they knew about him, verse 24, and he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And check this out. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Look at how the responsibility keeps getting added to his plate as he's faithful. 
He's a part of this first narrative of people actually being called Christians. And so he vouches for Paul. He brings Paul back to Antioch. People are getting saved in droves. And then he's a part of this process of discipleship. He's a great small group leader, apparently. And so he starts discipling the men in the church for a solid year with Paul before he does anything else. And at the core of his responsibility, he's teaching this doctrine, he's, he's giving his testimony, but at the core of his personality trait, look at me, he's just an encourager, he's a connector. All of this happening for the glory of God. This is the last one, and then we're gonna just apply this, but I wanna give you this one too. Chapter 13, just a few verses here. Verse one, now they were in the church at Antioch. There was Barnabas, there was Simeon, Lucius, Menian. And there's this, guy named Saul, or, uh, there's this guy named Saul. In verse two, while they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their heads on them, hands on them and they sent them off. And so now Barnabas, this is the pinnacle of where we're going. Barnabas now goes from this person who's obedient and he's giving he goes from a place where he's just an encourager of people, where he's a connector of people. Now Barnabas and Paul are going out after fasting and praying, and now they're being sent off on the first missionary journey known to the early church. His responsibility is compounding, and so God is using him in more and more ways. He now goes from the encourager to the ambassador. And they do radical things on this missionary journey. At one point, they're preaching the gospel in a community, and it's Paul and it's Barnabas, and Paul's saying things that's so offensive, they take him outside of the city limits, they think they beat him to death. I don't know if you're familiar with this missionary journey, so I'll just recap it for you. And Barnabas is with him, and he's probably thinking, what in the world did I get myself into? But he's on this missionary journey, they take him outside of town, Barnabas is seeing all this, they, they beat Paul, which should have killed him, they stone him, and then by, by the hand of God, they think they've left him dead, they go back in the town, Paul gets up because he's not dead, he goes and finishes the sermon with Barnabas. This is Barnabas' new life as he's obedient to the Lord. He's an ambassador for the gospel and for advancement, and he's a person of the fine print that God uses in powerful ways. And so just a few application points, write this down. Write this down together. Number one, obedience is always the starting point. It supersedes any gift that you think you have. Obedience is always the starting point. If you were living 2,000 years ago in an agricultural community with no things like social security, when you're living under a ruthless dictator as an oppressed people group, if you owned a piece of land, there would probably be nothing more critical than that land that you own. And he gets saved, and his name changes, and he makes this decision that we need to take note of. Obedience is always, always, always the starting point. He chooses in this decision obedience over comfort. He chooses obedience over comfort. There's this watershed moment in his life where he could have walked away, he could have said the cost was too great, but he looked like other great narratives in scripture. He makes this metaphorical decision 
that when Jesus calls him by name and changes his name, that he's gonna get out of the boat and he's gonna start putting his feet and faith in the water and trusting Jesus that he's not gonna sink and he has this one thing that's precious to him and I think we can relate to that around here, can't we, in an agricultural community? We have these things that are precious and what's more precious than land if you're someone in agriculture? He says, I'm gonna give it to the local church and what he does is he puts his money where his mouth is and he knows something to be true, that he can say whatever he wants about this Jesus that was just on the scene, but until he takes his actions and he aligns them with his words, then they don't have a lot of weight to them. So Barnabas is obedient right out of the gate. He steps out of the water. Here's what we know about the way that Barnabas lived. Here's what he actually understood. You're gonna see a few things that I thought were important. Number one, obedience to God builds trust with people. If you're wondering why your relationships, maybe even in the church, are a bit fractured, if you want to be a person who's a leader in your church or in the setting that God has placed you in, obedience to God builds trust with people. They saw him live out his life day after day after day after day. And each day, nothing was too incredible. But when you took all the days and you put them together, all of a sudden now this guy is really someone who's getting noticed by the local leaders. Obedience to God builds trust with people. Here's a second thing that you need to understand, maybe if you're in leadership. Kingdom work is all about building and leveraging relationships. He's a connector of people. You can't leverage a relationship that you've never built. So he builds the relationship and then he leverages it in those big moments of life. And then the third thing is very simple. Encouragement is a vital part of the process for him. Encouragement is a vital part of the process for us as we are building and leveraging relationships. He is somebody who made a great impact for the kingdom. Here's a second thing that we wanna bring to light in this sermon series. Number two, without Barnabas, without Barnabas, there, there is no Paul. I mean, God can do whatever God wants to do, but I want you to think about that because maybe you've been someone who in your own mind has been overlooked for a long time. I'm telling you stories of high school. You're saying, that wasn't my high school experience. There were no Friday night lights. I was in the background, right? I got cut from the, from the marching band. My story is I've always been in the background. But without Barnabas, there's no Paul. At least that's how God lays it out in Acts. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul provides doctrine that we still stand on that's the foundation for today, like the book of Romans. Paul's the most brilliant mind besides Christ to ever walk on this earth, in my opinion. And Paul is the guy that we see helps with Peter form the early church, but if it were not for Barnabas in the fine print, there's no Paul. Barnabas is going right when it's at that critical moment. I can vouch for this guy. I know you don't trust him, but I can vouch for him. And in that moment, because of his credibility, Paul jumps on the scene. That's happened all throughout history. There's a story that I was learning about this week. There's a guy, is any, anyone a kind of a history buff in church? No one, all right. It's kind of a loaded question, because then maybe I'll call on you. I just had a seventh grade to raise their hand. I'll, maybe I'll call on you, like, I don't know the answer to that. But I'm not going to call on you, but, but if you're a history buff, who in here, by show of hands, have heard of a guy by the name of William Wilberforce? Anybody? I'll give you a little hint, and it's kind of the 1700-ish era, later part of 1700s. Uh, anyone heard of him? Seriously, has anyone heard of that guy? You have. Okay. We have a winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? Anybody else? 
right? One more person, William Wilberforce. I'm not going to ask you what he did because you're like, oh, I, I thought I knew who he was and now I look like an idiot. But uh, there, there's another guy that you probably really never heard of, Thomas Clarkson. Anybody? There's a reason you never heard of Thomas Clarkson because he looks like Barnabas. And when I tell you the story, you're going to go, oh, okay. Uh, I do kind of know what this is about. William Wilberforce was the leader of the movement to abolish African slave trade. And there was a guy that preceded him that no one knows about in 1760, Thomas Clarkson. At 19, he went to Cambridge. In 1779, he wrote an essay that he entered into a Latin essay petition and won. And the subject of this essay is, is slave trade lawful? Now, we look at this a few hundred years later and we go, of course it's not lawful. It's, it's a disgrace. It's a, you know, it's a stain on history. It's been going on for uh, ever since time began and sin entered into the equation. It's just horrible. But this question a few hundred years ago was very relevant. And people began to become aware of all this. And in 1785, Thomas formed a commission for the abolition of African slave trade. He approached a member of parliament named Wilberforce, who then 12 years later pushed legislation that was soundly defeated, but by 1807, the Slave Trade Act changes history. These are our forefathers in history. We look to them and we go, man, everyone hated them at the time, but they were just ahead of their game. And there was this guy that some people, historians know who Wilberforce is. No one knows who Clarkson is. And without Clarkson, there's no Wilberforce. Without Barnabas, there's no Paul. Because he's a person of the fine print. And these people matter because God uses them in powerful ways. Here's the last thing. We're going to close on this. Here's a quote from the study. The church is not built on the gifts of a few, but on the sacrifices of many. Now, I'm, I, here's what we're going to do in this series. I'm going to bring people to light that used to be with us, that are with us. And the person that I'm going to start off with to make this a very New Life-specific series is a guy named Bill. Does anyone know Bill or remember Bill? Bill was one of my best friends. He's with his daughter in this picture. Bill loved the Packers. Bill loved serving. And Bill was an absolute hippie absolute hippie. I was a younger guy. I was in my late 20s when I met him. I was a youth pastor at this church. We had existed for a few years, and Bill and I were kind of walking together. In fact, one of the things that Bill has as a marker on this church is one of the things we do when we go out to eat is we eat very healthy Mexican food from Mazatlan's. And Bill was like a founder of that. He liked Guadalajara's better, which I know this is the big controversy in town. Uh, there's actually another place called Dulce's if you want real Mexican food. It is earth-shattering from Bakersfield like type of Mexican food where I grew up. But Bill loved eating Mexican food with me. He lived on a fixed income. Um, he fixed upholstery in restaurants on the side all over South Dakota for a living. I think he, you could say he probably made less than $1,000 a month. He would go to gas stations. He'd go to Wall, South Dakota. He'd go, I got to go fix the upholstery at the gas station. He probably spent more money on gas than he got paid when he got there. But Bill was a hippie to the core. He got saved in the Jesus movement. He went to Trinity Bible College in Allendale way back in the day. He was a folk singer. He could pick a guitar like nobody's business. He even has a CD that I still have in my truck. This guy was a dear friend to me, uh, even though he was older than my father. It was like he was just my friend, and we would live life together. And Bill was such an encourager. 
Bill was such an encourager to me. I remember when I first took the pulpit, and it was terrible. I mean, I just, anyone remember that? Is there anybody? Like, it wasn't good, okay? I, I know that still, you know, I'm not like Louis Giglio, but I've gotten a little better. And he was so encouraging to me, and I realized now that he was really just lying to me, but it meant enough for me to keep going when he told me these things about me. And so Bill was this intricate part of new life, and Bill was the volunteer janitor at the church, Never got a dime to my knowledge, ever got paid. He would come in, check this out. We first moved in this building like 2008. He would come in at five in the morning and clean the toilets at New Life. I'm gonna tell you a story that's kind of gross, but I'm just gonna tell it. This is Bill. I think you can't understand Bill unless you know this story about him. I'm gonna say it uh, with a bit of caution, but he came to me, I was like 28 years old, and we were all at the church and, and uh, he was cleaning the building at five in the morning. We just got into this building. And he said, with, like, he had like, uh, he didn't cry, but his eyes were a little watery. It was like a half cry. And he said, I need to talk to you. He set up with this, meet, this meeting with me. He said, I need to meet with you. And he set it up and he never planned for like a week in advance. He, he really felt like he had something for the Lord from me. And so I was going, what, like, what did I do? Did he have a, you know, a prophecy where he saw something? I mean, what, what is he going to tell me about my own life? And he comes to me and he goes, Rodney, you've, I've been cleaning the bathrooms now for a year. I'm not getting paid a dime. And I think I have it narrowed down to you and a few other people. <laughs> Tracking with the story? And I'm going, oh, is this like a word? Like, what is this? And he goes, I think you might have something unhealthy in your diet. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, like, it's not me, baby. It's not mine. Like, I, I was thinking to myself, what in the world is this guy talking about? He's one of my best friends. I, I said, Bill, I don't know what you're talking about, but I swear I'm about 70% confident that it's not me. And I just remember how authentic he was. I've never shared that story with anybody, so don't tell. But... Uh, but he was such an encourager. I remember when I first started preaching, like I said, he was just encouraging me. And then um, just not too long after that, he got this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. It's one of the, the worst and scariest diagnosis you could ever have. And I walked with this guy as he became frail. And we still went to Mazatlan's and Guadalajara's together. And I was with him at his bedside when he passed. And I was with him as he was giving praise to Jesus, even as his body was physically just just lessening and I, I remember this guy and I'll never forget him because he was a he was a a piece of this puzzle right but in such a larger narrative that he even understood he had an access to the elder board because he was really good friends with the elders he had my ear for sure when I transitioned and then God got to put, started putting things on my heart for, for us even starting more campuses and doing things in Peru, things that he never really saw that he heard me talk about. Then he passed and he probably never really would have even imagined what actually God was doing through this movement. And he was used by God to speak into my life in a way where God, you know, he was just somebody that I trusted in ministry and he was an encourager for me and he never would have even imagined. I found this picture, don't show it yet, I had it made. I told Kara, I said, find people in the last few years who've been baptized, whose lives have been changed at this place called New Life as a visual for us to all walk with together as we close out week one. And she put this picture together. Maybe you see your own face or your kid's face in it. But, but check this out. We'll put that on social media maybe after today. Here's what I want you to see as we close. Bill the janitor, Bill the hippie, 
Bill, the upholstery repair guy, living on less than a grand a month, driving like a three-cylinder vehicle. Bill was a part of that. You tracking? Bill was instrumental each morning, 5 a.m., cleaning the bathrooms, speaking into the lives of the pastors, casting vision, helping casting vision in a sense for the church. Bill was so integral in that process. He was a person of the fine print. Everybody who knew Bill at New Life loved Bill. Bill's story wasn't perfect. He had some regrets. He didn't always serve Jesus consistently in his life, but those last several years, he locked in, and he spoke into my life, and I'm just telling you very frankly, without Bill, I I don't know, right? Without Bill, I don't know. New Life has had a, a strong role in this community, and it's been people in the fine print. So my challenge to you week one is this. What about you? Are you obedient? Write it down. Ask yourself later. Are you obedient? Are you obedient with the small things that can lead to bigger things? Here's another question. Are you investing? I'm not talking just finance. I'm really not. We're doing great financially. I don't know if you track with that. Are you investing with your life? So so what I'm saying is, is this a place you go to to consume something? Or is this a people that you belong to where you're now pouring out and saying, I'm all about what they're about. I want to see people get saved and discipled. Are you obedient like Barnabas? Are you investing like Barnabas? Do you know your role? Are you comfortable in your own spiritual skin? Do you know what God has called you to? Does your life look like Bill? Does your life look like Barnabas? Are you on board with making disciples? Here's what Barnabas would have done. Here's the last plug downtown. Are you ready for this? Barnabas would have been a great life group leader. He had all the makings of it. He didn't have to get all the glory. He took the information, and then he discipled men in the church for a year before they went on their missionary journey. And so he, he knew who he was in Christ. And he had the respect of the people around him. He would have been a great small group leader. And so I just want to ask you, are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you taking that next step? Are you not just looking at this like, well, I'll sign something up out there. Could God be possibly placing on your heart, maybe you don't even live in Aberdeen, you live outside of Aberdeen, God is saying, I have this group of people in Ellendale, in Ipswich, in Groton, in Webster. We have people from all, along, all around. Ashley, North Dakota, they come and they call New Life their home. Wabe. God's called me to be a Barnabas in that context, and I have these eight or ten people that I can bring around, and we can listen to the sermons together, or we can study the Word of God together, or we can get down right now media together, and I know that I can fill that role. Are you submitting to what God has called you to do to be obedient and to invest and to know your role and to know your lane? Because together, all of us make up these stories, amen? I don't know how many people there are, but it looks like a lot. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us and set us apart. And if we were to get up here and have testimony time, there'd be person after person who'd say, man, I thought I was saved. I thought I, thought I knew how life worked. But what I came to realize is I was religious, that I was just raised in a religious system that Christ was a religious figure in my life, but he wasn't my savior. And so now that I'm saved by you, Jesus, God, what I pray is that you would open my heart to how I would invest in this kingdom work with you. That you're the superstar, that I'm the person in the fine print. 
God, use this story of Barnabas to open my heart as to how you would have me lead. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.